Beardy and the Beast Media Club. This is placeholder intro song. Oh ho ho, and welcome to a very merry gathering of the Beardy and the Beast Media Club. This is a full spoiler discussion into a piece of media. We will not let those spoilers fall off the side of a building to their demise. If you are feeling particularly giving this season, like, subscribe, and share us with your friends and family. We may not fit under the tree, but we will fit in their hearts. As always, my name is Drew. And what's that sound? Is that a set of burglars? Is it a confession written on posters? No, it's old Saint Dev come to deliver cheer to all the boys and girls. I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> Today we'll be discussing the 1988 Christmas classic, Die Hard. So, Devin, was this Yippie Kaye or was it Yippie Kai Nay? Uh, this was Yippie Kaye. And I have something that I did not realize until I was watching this movie last night. What's that? I don't think I've ever seen Die Hard. Oh, no, I hadn't seen it either. I, I thought I'd seen it. Like, I know I've seen, like, others in the series. I don't think I've ever seen Die Hard. <laughs> I, I hadn't seen this one or any of the ones in the series. Fair enough. <laughs> the only one I can remember is Die Hard with a Vengeance. And I don't remember much of it. <laughs> is that Die Hard 3? Because Die Hard yeah. 2 is Die Harder, wasn't it? Yes. And then there's, what, Live Free and Die Hard? Yeah, there's there's like four or five of them. Yeah. I imagine they... They probably all aged as well as this one did. I, I really Not enjoyed sure this one. <laughs> I, I, I did too. You were going to call me out for sounding sarcastic, didn't you? No, I was going to call you out because I couldn't tell if you were being sarcastic or not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I actually think this movie aged quite well. Oh, I do too. It's, I mean, it's funny as they're talking about the car phones and how fancy that touchscreen was for the... Um, for the name directory. Mm -hmm. But. Well, you don't even get that yeah, not, these days from my experience. Unless, yeah. unless that's in like super high tech buildings, but I've never seen uh, like an interface like that. Um, I've seen something, I guess, similar-ish to like in like malls. Like they yeah. changed up the maps to be those giant touch screens. Okay. Yeah. Not the small little like iPad size one. And I mean, in 88. <laughs> that must have been expensive so do you think like on a technical aspect do you think that screen was was it like a recorded video or was it a was it actually like an installation there in the uh was it that the fox uh building yeah so because i know it's the fox building mm -hmm. i want to lean towards it was real Oh, Ed, I guess to uh, ex explain that, apparently this was actually filmed in uh, a building owned by Fox Studios, like one of their actual corporate buildings that was under construction. Yeah. So I was wondering about it, like... And they paid themselves for it. <laughs> well, I mean, they, they probably would have had to, like, legally. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny when <laughs> those legal things happen. <laughs> it just means that yeah, a portion of the expenditures in the actual... Um, recording of this film was Fox having to play itself. So technically in the, the end, the money stayed in the same bubble, but the production was still of whatever that cost was, unless yeah. they did like a generic, um, 
a dollar for rent sort of thing. Yeah. Even then, it still keeps the money in generic. In the generic bubble. It's got to happen. Makes sense. Just one of those funny things, not a condemnation of it or anything. Um, but it's interesting, though, because they were using a building under construction, it got away with kind of some interesting things. Like, apparently, the explosions that were outside were just real explosions. Yeah. They weren't, like, miniatures and such. So, like, oh, well, it's under construction. Let's blow some stuff up. <laughs> so good. <laughs> when you can tell, like, I like to think that even a controlled explosion has a different quality to it than something that's put in in, say, post. Or... Yeah. Like, we, we, we always talk highly of practical effects. They always seem to be better, even when they're a little bit campy. Yeah. I mean, a good example of that would probably be, like, Labyrinth. Definitely campy creatures, but the fact that they were practical had, like, a more visceral feeling to them. There's something yeah. more real oh, exactly. about them. And I think, like, even controlled pyrotechnics have, have that kind of feel. And, like, some of it even leads to... Like, happy accidents. Mm. So I, when I was doing research for this, apparently, when John McClane was hanging from the gun in the shaft, trying to get mm -hmm. to the, uh, the vent, the, the actual stunt actor actually did miss the jump. And they just went with that shot. And it yeah. made it that much more intense. So he was trying to make yeah. it to that parallel window, and in the script, he made it. But because of a happy little practical accident, they had something with a something that felt like it had a bit more risk. Yes. Yeah, it's one of those things that's you can't really you can't really fake that risk convincingly. Mm -hmm. um, they did they actually did something similar with uh, Rickman at the end of the film when they when he was you know tossed off the building. He had a stuntman with him who let him go on two instead of three. Hmm. So that reaction again, just that, that complete natural reaction because, oh, <laughs> <laughs> little things, but it works. Uh, I did theater tech way back uh, in high school and it was one of those things like, let's say you have someone who is the only person who uses the stage right entrance mm. and he's always supposed to be, you know, klutzy and stumbles so how do you force them to do that and make it seem natural? You make one of the stairs an inch shorter or yep. an inch taller. So they just trip and there's no way you can fake that same type of trip. It shows. Well, and that's another reason why like so many little ad-libbed bits that end up getting kept are so much more entertaining than the actual script itself. Mm -hmm. Like apparently the... I always forget his name. I want to call him Rickman because I love Rickman so much. The John McLean Hans or Hans um, meeting uh, was mostly unscripted and uh, just freewheeled like off the top. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know how Alan Rickman would have felt, felt about that, but he was always a professional. So yeah. it definitely, definitely stayed true. Even, even though his American accent was almost as bad as his German one. <laughs> but but it, it, it's funny so because apparently a lot of the film was ad-libbed but let's talk about that that part there in particular they 
wanted to have them meet somehow, but weren't quite sure how to do it. They found out Alan Rickman had a passable American accent. Mm. Like it's a very generic, it's an American accent that. Like you can't specify region. Yeah. in, In the same way that an American will put on a British accent. You can tell it's supposed to be from England, but you can tell it's not from England. Yeah, there isn't like a, a cadence or a dialect to it. Yeah. Right. And which is nice because they, it's like he worked that in when he was questioning him, <laughs> when he was trying to figure out if he was mm-hmm. actually a hostage. Right. Just calls him out on the bad accents. Uh, so it was a good touch. Uh, I, I do. I do. There, there were other. I do wish that that scene specifically was spelled out a little bit more, because it was more of a. I, I give you a gun and then you pull the gun on me. It's it's actually you know what that was probably the test. Mm-hmm. The actual like he had a suspicion, but he handed him the gun. I'm just like yeah. reasoning things to myself because if that's not the case, then it's John McLean being super smart, but we don't know why. Maybe thirty percent more spelled out for the audience. I think. Well, so I think there's a couple things that so immediately it makes sense to be suspicious. Mm. He's he's been running around for a couple hours at this point, and literally no one else really how'd you get out here like it it makes sense but you got to give the benefit of the doubt somewhat because maybe someone did escape mm-hmm. he was literally testing him throughout it's like asking what the name was but hans was smart enough to kind of was observant enough to see the names and picks a name that's on that board right well, that's why i think the gun was the like the final 100 percent test yeah like, yeah. I think he handed him an unloaded gun. Still not sure. Apparently, in my reading, there was one other pointer that they had that was supposed to show that it wasn't, that he wasn't who he was saying was. And it's something that I feel like it's a stretch, but it's what the production says was one. It's the way he held his smoke. The way Hans held his smoke mm. is apparently a very European way. Oh, okay. As opposed to an American way. Not something I noticed, but could see it being something if you have knowledge. That would be a part that needs to be spelled out a little bit more. Well, it could also yeah, be like Hans, Hans wasn't a smoker. So I'm wondering, like you can tell when someone's not a smoker, yeah. when you are a smoker. Yeah. Like you can just, it is all in the way that he was holding it. Mm-hmm. So the fact that he was like, oh, you're a smoker, and then, like, even if it wasn't picking up that it was a European way, there's something, like, weird about a hand position. Yeah. And, and, and it's subtle things, um, subtle things like that that work. I think, yeah, it was definitely the final test. I guess I can go either way on the spelling it out that little bit more. At the same time, they already shown John to be fairly clever. So well, that's what stretch. he has, so, like, in spades. Yeah. Yeah. Before we get off the uh, like the ad lib train and the improv train, uh, little PSA for the little hours. Here's how you do a whole lot of improv in a movie and have it done like 
passably well. Oh, yeah. It's almost like having something more than six pages to go off of. <laughs> <laughs> Give you something. Um, yeah, apparently a lot of it was ad-libbed, which is interesting. And I guess I think some of it may have worked so well being ad-libbed. This is apparently both Bruce Willis's and Alan Rickman's first film. Mm. Yeah, because Bruce Willis was in a comedy TV show. Yeah. Was Alan Rickman a stage actor? Was that? Yeah, stage actor. So both of those have liberal amounts of ad lib and needing to kind of pick up and carry. Probably made it a lot easier for them to even have these ad lib scenes and discussions. You know what's interesting? The artificial chemistry between the two. They have what, like, three scenes together. The rest of them, of it, is them talking over the radio. So the way that, yes. the way that those are generally shot is there'll be someone reading the other ca- character's lines and the mm-hmm. person replying in like the, uh, in this case, the walkie-talkie or whatever. Yeah. So it, it felt like they had an adversarial chemistry. Mm-hmm. But in reality, they probably weren't even talking or even in the same like room with each other. Yeah, it was just that's like true. the the acting sold it as if they were actually talking together on those uh, radios. Yeah, I wonder if they did something like they did in Who Framed, where they were actually line reading each other and being able to interact with each other. Well, I mean, it is it is an older film. I wouldn't be surprised if you told me that none of the Aven- the Avengers actors were ever actually in the same room as each other. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if you said that. Um, yeah. And I might just be projecting that thought onto this film. I, I think the way I could phrase it for this film is, I wouldn't be surprised if Bruce Willis was um, off camera reading his lines to Alan Rickman. Yeah. Yeah, because, yeah, the chemistry was definitely there it's done like the, the even the characterizations they're great foils for each other like both of them were getting by on their cleverness and wits more mm-hmm. than anything well, then, i'm gonna use that to segue <laughs> or if you want to go ahead first well i was gonna say like when it came to sergeant l powell there was mm-hmm. a chemistry there too uh, it wasn't yeah. as good maybe it's because like i'm so used to like a buddy buddy thing and i'm more interested in um, the mind games between the protagonist and the antagonist in these type of films. Yeah. But uh, there was t- certainly a lot of chemistry there. It just wasn't. I'm wondering, I'm wondering if that was like, that'd be a props, props to the director then. Yeah. The way that it was Except directing them. Like, or maybe they, I mean, they could have practiced line delivery together and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm thinking about the chemistry, like overall the chemistry was the only character that I really didn't feel any chemistry. Well, there's two characters i didn't feel any chemistry for but so help me if you say argyle you're gonna fight me irl in fortnite 1v1 (laughs) no no argyle was awesome okay good good good. page i can forgive anything you say oh you're gonna say Um, the coked up guy aren't you the coked up guy in the in the police chief yeah well i mean police chief was your standards 80s movie police chief and honestly coked up guy was your standard 80s movie coke guy like they're kind of just archetypes that were thrown into it like you're supposed to like dislike this guy because of the character archetype 
Yeah, and I think that's what, you know, surprisingly for, you know, what most people would just consider, you know, just your action movies. Like, the reason I'm pointing them out in this movie and wouldn't say, you know, in Lethal Weapon or something like that, if there was characters in the same way, is because again, you have the characters basically all never actually interacting with each other. Mm -hmm. But there was believable chemistry between John and Hans. Right. Like you could feel the antagonistic relationship. There was good chemistry between Powell and John. Mm. Uh, and I think your disconnect in the chemistry there is it was a support chemistry. Mm. It, it was, it was literally, we're both professionals. We both know what's at stake. We both know what's going here. So let's get the dark humor. Let's get you through this. Right. And so of course it's very believable that when he sees him, when he's outside, you know, gives him the big hug. Yeah, I, 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 I got the hug. The hug made sense. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, but it's because of that other chemistry built up. And even the chemistry between uh, John and Helen, or Holly. Oh, I believed that they were an estranged couple, and he was trying, and she was pretty much over it. And, like, I just had completely bought into it. And, again, they didn't actually get to spend much time together. Well, I always thought, I always thought story Bruce time. Willis was a better a actor than a lot of people give him credit for. Yeah. I mean, even though he's well, been doing some crazy movies lately. Yeah. That's a lot of people. <laughs> I know, it gets to a point where you can just go, yeah, I'm going to try it. Why not? Or if you're in, like, Nicolas Cage's boots, you lose a whack ton of mo money, and now you just do anything. <laughs> which is what yeah, i like he wasn't doing just anything before he left <laughs> what are you talking about there is a map on the back of the constitution is that it yeah that was it yep 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 what's the preserving room for making delicious jams and chilies <laughs> so what was your segue i was gonna steal it but then i forgot what your segue was gonna be yes i die <laughs> uh Oh, I think I was going to, because we're talking about the emotions and, and character chemistry. Um, I was actually going to segue into this a little bit as an action film. Because mm. it's, it's really interesting. Because this is one of those, you know, quintessential action films. And we generally consider it very much that 80s action. Mm -hmm. Apparently, like, a lot of this actually started breaking the 80s action hero. Well, I could see that, there, like, it had a low body count is one thing. A low body count. Um, the hero was capable, but not, like, a superhero. Right? He wasn't, you know, this, um, Schwarzenegger and Schwarzenegger Predator? Yeah. Right? It wasn't that type of action hero. It was someone who was flawed, who's clearly getting hurt. I mean... It was clear that he got shot on that roof. You saw that blood spat ladder. Mm -hmm. Well, we talked about that in Nobody. At least mm -hmm. that first action scene, it felt as if there was, uh, talking about Nobody in the bus scene, it felt as if there was real consequences to the damage that was being taken. Yeah. And then there was points where I kind of got that feeling in Die Hard, not to the same extent. But I mean, at the end, it was obvious that, like, he had been shot, he had been beaten, his feet were all torn up, at least from um, the character standpoint. So 
this was like a beaten man whose last hope was on the two bullets, which coincidentally were the amount that he needed. Yeah. But like speaking of the bullets, so yeah, coincidentally it was the amount that he needed. But another major trope of action movies is the the magazine is exactly as big as you need it to be. Hmm. Well, in this uh, one, he was it, checking his ammo several times, and he was switching clips based on like how much ammo he found. To the point, yeah, exactly. And to the point that I actually counted shots at one point. And I mean, I'm not the biggest gun guy, but I think like a standard pistol can hold like, you know, 12 rounds or so. Mm-hmm. So when he kills the guy in the boardroom, I counted the shots there. Mm-hmm. He shot 13 shots. 12 and one in the chamber and then the gun was lo- the slide was locked back so it was empty hmm. like nope that is that's the good attention to detail and even seeing all of the the terrorists or thieves or whichever oh the um, tourists yeah yes the <laughs> tourists um that's right the tourists <laughs> um yeah all the tourists had good trigger discipline their fingers were never on the trigger What's until the, they were actively. I, I like that. Like like these type of, <laughs> in, the, in some of these films, like you'll actually, they'll, they'll hand the weapon to someone who is not fer- very familiar with a weapon yeah. and their finger will go to the trigger. And I think that is that attention to detail. I'm wondering actually if that was the final, the real final test that we were talking mm-hmm. about. I'm wondering what trigger discipline was shown for when uh, McCain handed Hans the gun uh, because Hans had said like he went to a combat camp and played paintball. Yeah. So it's entirely likely that he would not have great trigger discipline. So I'm wondering if that was part of that test. We'd have to go back and look at that scene, but I imagine that. I think either way just knowing what the situation was, I don't know if the trigger discipline in and of itself would have been a tell. Yeah. Well, what I mean, the reason for that is because if they did only just do paintball finger going to the trigger, you're right. Would make sense. They haven't actually used firearm if they, but we also know Hans wants to kill John. So his finger would go to the trigger. I don't think it would Uh, for a professional. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I'm just no, like, I'm, I'm wondering if that, we'd have to go back and look, but I'm just wondering if that's another, yeah. uh, one of many tells in that situation, just to keep on topic. Mm-hmm. But I, when I noticed the whole bullet thing was, um, was the scene, he had, he had a magazine and he took one out and he looked at it and then he like was thinking of which one and then he chose the other one. It was like obvious that they were both less than full. Yeah. So he chose the one with the more bullets i guess you could say and then he knew he had a like a lesser magazine with him yeah there was a couple of there's a couple of other places where it popped out to me so even right at the beginning mm. like when he gets the first gun you see him grab a bunch of magazines mm-hmm. right so at the very least even if they were doing reload when you need to they acknowledged that you would need to right at the beginning yeah uh, so that was one spot. Uh, another spot when he was like the uh, vent 
scene that we already talked about, the gun was empty. Mm-hmm. Like you could see in the clip it was empty. So he was using it, but he also wasn't just leaving an active weapon around. Yeah. Which was nice. Um, there was, there wasn't much full auto fire, except when it actually made sense to be full auto fire. For the most part, they were burst firing, and unless they were doing covering fire. <laughs> I tell you what, though, on this topic, they did do the one thing that I hate from eighties and early nineties movies when holding a like a submachine gun mm. or something of that nature. They fire them from the hip. Mm. I, I know I'm not. <laughs> it, it's it's. The the only the only person who ever like shouldered a weapon or actually aimed down sights and it wasn't a pistol was uh, what's his name the big guy who was trying to avenge his brother Carl yeah and the sniper in the helicopter gun wasn't wasn't hip firing on the roof no so the only people who aimed down sights who didn't have a handgun was Carl yeah, John was using John was using assault rifle he had it up I'm pretty sure he, he had it waist like, waist high just spraying well again oh i think it did a little bit of both just like again that's the cover fire idea the idea isn't necessarily to stop them when they've got that many people it's to make them take cover as well the thing is if like if you're already standing up and you're already stationary Mm -hmm. and you're firing a weapon at somebody why wouldn't you lift it yeah to at least get a semi-accurate even if you're doing cover fire you're trying to defend your life like that yeah why are all these guys firing from the hip? It just bugs me. Yeah. No, that's fair. It's it's no uh, reason they never, no one ever hits each other. <laughs> <laughs> They're just spraying from the hip. No, I, I do think there's more aimed in sights than you're thinking. Because I'm thinking even the guy, when the cops were coming in, he was aimed down sights when they disabled the cops. I think it was more, yeah, specifically when they were moving around. It was just like, oh, when the guy, when the guy was laying on the floor doing a precision shot, he aimed down sights, of course. (laughs) Yeah. Which did, I mean, this whole like machine gun thing, the whole bringing us to like very memorable catchphrases, Mm. Uh, like the whole, like, and now I have a machine gun. Yeah. (laughs) That was so good. (laughs) And again, it, it stuck. Just, just like it was so full of them. However, it wasn't, it wasn't grating, and it wasn't like nowadays where they say a, they say something and then it's like pause for applause or cheering. Yeah, like, I mean, everyone knows, of course, the hippie Kaye. Like, that's just cultural zeitgeist. Uh, but even just things like the at the very end, it's like, oh hi, honey. You know, when she's got a gun to her head, <laughs> like it was. It just worked. I think a lot of this happened, I guess, apparently Bruce Willis spent a bunch of time with cops Mm. beforehand and learned their humor, right? So you get that gallows dark humor because you're right. A lot of people go, the one-liners are so cheesy, but to to work with with, um, cops and go, no, this is, this is how it is, right? Because you got to do something to get through that. (laughs) so I think that's why it worked. It, we talked about this in Underwater a little bit. The, the idea of using the humor as your coping mechanism. Yeah. Right. So 
the the humor and the one-liners that come from that i think is that same thing it's like this is a bad situation clearly not in a good place still needs to do this still goes through and you just it's what gets you through well i I always look at that sort of thing as the like the mental and emotional equivalent to making sure like your body's loose before any type of sport Mm. or like making making sure to massage out your your muscles during like high tense situations such as say rock climbing or field sports like i do i i look at it as yeah the same uh as uh, a mental version of that that gallows mm-hmm. humor yeah it, and it worked yeah becomes as you said very memorable and didn't feel overused the reactions to the stuff was natural mm. all right and i think again that comes from some of the ad-libbing if you don't know what to expect you know, your reaction is probably going to be be that way i think i saw something about like oh, i can't remember what the line was it was like Someone called Alan Rickman's character something. I can't quite remember what it was, but he just like started chuckling at it because he wasn't expecting it, and, and it worked. They kept it in the line. All I know is, honestly, Rick, Rickman does like a sly bad character well. Mm-hmm. And there was some very specific acting choices that he did that I really enjoyed. Like his weird smile. Yeah. Like it was, it seemed intentional. <laughs> At least the way that he was like smiling and reacting to various stimuli. So I think that was like wondering if that's some stage acting roots coming in. Because mm-hmm. you gotta make sure like it's big so it can be seen in the back row sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. That uh, makes sense. You gotta you have to emote very differently on mm-hmm. stage. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess so we've kind of been talking about this as a like a film and the characters in itself, but how does it stand up as a Christmas movie. You know, there is it missed a key point for it to be a good Christmas movie. Mm. We don't see the family reunite at the end. Well, it's gotta have the Christmas morning thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh this is as much an amazing Christmas movie as Parasite Eve is an amazing Christmas video game. <laughs> That's a Christmas video game. <laughs> well, I'm I'm trying to think like in a few ways I wish it had improved upon some of the standard Christmas tropes. Like in a general sense, we have the the actions of a father usually related to some type of antagonist stimulus is making it so the family's not going to be together on Christmas. Or Christmas is going to be ruined for some reason. It's that's usually the way that it goes. Yeah. It's it's always the dad who's the asshole in a Christmas movie. Yeah, I can't think of an example. Well, in family Christmas movies. Yeah. I mean, there's other types of Christmas movies, but... um, And it definitely kind of followed that framework very generally. Mm -hmm. I I think you're very right. I think the only thing missing was, like, the reunited scene. Even even with the fact that uh, they had the, like, riding off into the sunset, I don't think that was quite Mm -hmm. enough. Especially, you know, especially after that news reporter, like terrified the kids yeah no i just wanted to see the daughter get that big ass teddy bear <laughs> well because i see your father you know what you know what would have made this like 100 percent a stereotypical christmas movie is if the bear was a repeated thing as like if he had taken it up and then there was some type of like side story related towards the bear 
where John McClane loses the bear and then like gets it back, but loses again. And then in the end he has the bear and he's like walking out of the building. Yes. It's like, yeah, the, the reacquired gift for the kid is also like another big Christmas trope. So the fact that it was safe with Argyle the whole time. Yeah. It just needed those, those two things. And it would have literally fit the general framework of a Christmas movie. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a Christmas movie. What did I hear about Even Fox says so. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, Fox says so. I, th- I think there was a line in the series Community that was related to it. Indicating mm-hmm. that Die Hard's the best Christmas movie ever made or some such like that. Um, it's definitely it's definitely one of the more enjoyable ones. I'd put it mm-hmm. in the framework of it. But, I mean, we're also kind of talking like Christmas in LA, so it's not like we're going to have... Uh, all the snow and it's unlikely to have uh, a snowy Christmas morning situation. Yeah. It's... Now, if you wanted to have the snowy Christmas situation, they would have had to do it the other way. You mean where Hollywood, Buffy and Angel are standing on a hill and yeah. the sun's about to come up, but then all of a sudden it starts snowing in Los Angeles because Magic. nerd. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so what was um, that about New York? <laughs> Uh, well because he was a new york cop going to la Mm -hmm. uh it should have been like if you wanted to have that snowy aspect you would have had him be the la cop going to new york Mm. i even like the idea because that's another christmas movie trope the accidental inviting because it seems almost like he was accidentally invited by the boss to the Christmas party. Because mm. Holly had no idea. And she would have known if she had anything to do with the limo coming to pick him up or anything like that. Yeah, there's definitely there was definitely an accidental invite there. Because yeah. the the boss ordered and paid for the limo and it took him to the party. Yep. Which I mean brings us to the only plot hole in the entire show ever. Mm. <laughs> in the entire movie. Um <laughs> How did the boss know about his flight itinerary? Well, again, but that covers that. No, but like, how did he get that information? If he invited him. Oh, wait, does that, (laughs) wait a minute. Remember, there's some like headcanon stuff going in my head right now. Was it uh, Takagi? Yeah. What was the family name? I think he only gets referenced as Takagi. So I assumed that was the family name. Okay. That, that means that. Takagi was banking on a Christmas miracle of trying to get this couple back together. Yep. Because they were very much estranged and she was very much uncertain that he was going to arrive, he was going to stay anywhere, and that he was coming to the party. Okay. But how estranged would Takagi have actually perceived it? Uh, well, I mean, she she dropped the McLean has name. Pictures of, has pictures of family all over her office with John in them. Mm. I think he's perceptive. I don't take him as an unperceptive man. I like to yeah. live in the head cannon that this entire thing was Takagi's plan. Yeah. <laughs> maybe the not maybe not dying. Yeah. But the rest of it. Yeah. I really appreciate that Takagi called them out. I mean, yes, he died because of it. It's like, what are you gonna do if I don't give it to you? <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, I mean, that actually points out the bigger plot hole that I saw in this film. 
There's no plot. It's the only one that I saw. Sorry. Sorry, the one... Uh, incongruence? Questionable piece of... (laughs) Yes, the one questionable piece of technology when you're storing $640 million in bonds. Why? Oh, why does the safe... Safe locks disengage when the power is cut. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's just bad. Bad safe design. So, okay, so... It's dumb. Yeah. But knowing the type of safe and the fact that that would happen would mean that uh, Hans was actually this genius tourist thief guy. So, yeah. like, he put that all aside. But if we were to talk about the, how dumb it is that when the main power is cut to a building, the auxiliary power in the building will open the door or at least disengage the locks. Yeah. Why wouldn't it just at least leave it closed? Yeah. It's not magnetically locked, but it'd still be closed. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a hole. I would just say it's dumb. Because for, for, yeah. for, for like half of the movie to work, it would have required the fact that that door would open when the power was cut. With the bugs- door opening? The, the, the door opening, I, can, I don't quite mind the door opening when the power was cut, because I could assume that if the locks disengaged the weight of the door tilts it open. Okay. So, so that part I can get, but I'm just thinking is like, I know a building where I work, you know, it's got the electromagnetic locks that you need to fob in to disengage them. Yeah. And when the power gets cut out in the building, sometimes we can't open those doors. Yeah. (laughs) So here's what I thought. I, I didn't like the use of the explosives. I actually thought they were a backup plan to drop the safe down a shaft in the event that they couldn't open it, to just crack the safe. That was my thought. And then it was like, oh yeah, we put a ton of C4 so we could explode the top of the building. Like, that makes sense, the intention there. I just didn't like it. Yeah, yeah. I think, so I suspect this disconnect comes from the difference between the book, because apparently this is based off a book, mm. and, and the film. Because in the book, in the film, they were just common thieves and they get called out for it. In the book, I believe they were tourists. Uh, so that makes a difference. That, so I think that's where that comes from. It's probably why, you know, they had things like RPGs that they could fire <laughs> that were coming in. Um, I think they least explained why they were using the explosives then. Mm. basically faking their death is what they were going for yeah yeah like it makes sense i just don't like it yeah yeah but i I think that's probably where that choice comes from and just the that's the action blockbuster thing i think it would have been cool to drop a safe yeah but it's not oceans 11 yeah or any of the oceans film or (laughs) i kind of want to watch like an elaborate heist movie those are always like super fun yeah yeah i think you know just speaking of the the tourist versus thief option it's i do think it gave a little bit of ambiguity throughout the film well they originally called him a tourist and then they kind of backed off to a thief so i guess like it sounds like he gave up that life or alternatively was just using it to be like this master thief mm. like, I, I know from the script standpoint they did it because they thought tourists <laughs> wouldn't play well in the summer. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, they they figured that tourist angle wouldn't play well in the summer for like the summer blockbusters. Mm. Figured it would have put too much of a downer on it, but you turn it into a heist, that becomes becomes a lot more fun. Type yeah, though. there was definitely more like heist aspects to it. It was probably like a good change. Yeah, I mean, better than it being like a bus that can't go less than sixty miles an hour, otherwise it'll explode. Or a cruise so ship fun. that can't go under a certain amount of knots, otherwise it'll explode. That one was less fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we've kind of talked about the the points that were, for both of us kind of went, huh, that's kind of an odd choice with it. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about just the setups and payoffs throughout the entire film. Okay. So... The obvious one that's throughout the film is the guy on the airplane telling him, it's like, no, just take off your shoes, step in some carpet, make some fists with your toes. Yeah, and the whole, like, him... son of a bee thing. Yeah. Uh, so you get that payoff immediately to him trying to get shoes, but, you know, the guy has feet smaller than his wife. <laughs> so he couldn't wear those shoes to them shooting up the glass because they noticed he didn't have shoes. It was logical for him to not have them throughout the entire thing mm -hmm. and, and paid off there and actually became a hindrance to him. That's the big one. But a couple of the smaller ones that I saw that I, that I really liked was uh, Ellis is getting a can of Coke when he's talking, when he's radioing John, mm -hmm. pretending to be his friend because the Coke had probably asked for Coke. Mm. And to... The Rolex that what's assumed Ellis gave to Holly mm -hmm. coming back right at the end as well. Like that's how they managed to get Hans to lose the grip on her. Well, and I, 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 I definitely appreciated it. The bear, the whole barefoot thing and making fist with your toes thing was probably the biggest one. I did. I didn't catch the Coke one, but you're now that you say it that way, you're like, you're probably right. Like an opportune sponsorship is like, oh, hey, Coca-Cola, do you want to be in uh, our film? Yep. The, the only payoff that felt cliche to me was the payoff with Powell killing Carl. Right? It was because you had the reason why he was a desk one and to him being the one saving. It's like, I liked it. It's just very cop tropey. But it, yeah, that, again, it paid off. The one from the introduction of Powell where he's buying all those sweets and then mm -hmm. McLean was talking to him on the radio and he's like, what do they even put in these things? I like that one. As yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was definitely a lot of like setup slash punchline things that just worked well in this film. Yeah. I mean, like and I, I told you from the get go, I wasn't planning on watching this movie with an analytical mind, more of an entertainment mind. And I'm glad I did. Yeah. I, I did the same. Like I, I watched it. I, like, I mean, my notes are like half the notes that I have for anything else. I wrote four lines. Little... Yeah, I wrote probably. <laughs> One I of probably them is Argyle's the so. best. <laughs> I probably wrote like a dozen lines and some of them were just jokes. <laughs> because I thought they'd be funny. <laughs> not, <laughs> not like I think the only notes that I personally have written down is that's actually relevant story-wise is like the idea of um the safe locks the fact that i actually counted the shots because i thought that was really cool mm -hmm. but otherwise it's I, I watched it from an entertainment standpoint 
I try to watch most films from an entertainment standpoint, but there are a lot of films out there that have such egregious issues uh. that you can't help but notice it. You know, there's just some films that have kitty bracelets sitting underneath a underneath the couch. I will fight you any day regarding that. <laughs> hashtag kitty bracelet is best bracelet, and hashtag the. I mean, you just redacted that because you put the hashtag on both sides. No, just not. No, it's an end hashtag. Know. It's like, you know. Ah, okay. I, I got you. Just means no one will see it because you closed it off. We're nerds. That's a better nerd joke, but it's <laughs> not how it works. Uh, well, I, I I have to turn my brain on to be more analytical when it comes to a lot of these films. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the time, I'll just sit back and enjoy the ride. I go into yeah. every movie with no expectations, which means I'm always pleasantly surprised at minimum. <laughs> it's, it's the reason why I've seen and enjoyed like all the Transformer movies is because giant robots with exploding lasers. That's what I want. That's what I got. Agree with you. Like, I like watching movies like that too. Like Transformers? Yeah. No, they're crappily written. That's not what I'm watching this film for. Yeah. Um, I, like, I think I'm going with this here is like I was looking at this as that type of film, but to be able to see the clear good storytelling mm-hmm. throughout, like that that's a big plus. Yeah, for me it was the 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 opposite as in there was no egregious errors that pulled me out of the film. Nothing that like would have me throwing popcorn at the screen or saying, Oh, come on. Any trope that I acknowledged immediately was generally like, Oh, that was a thing. Yeah. I, I honestly think this film got better with age i guess i can't say that uh, uh definitively because i didn't this is the first time i've watched it but it holds I mean, up i i have a way to because again 99.99 percent certain that this is the first time i've ever seen this <laughs> it's one of those movies that, that's just in my in the cultural zeitgeist you hear enough about it that you know what's happening yeah and i'm gonna agree with you that this aged very well and might it might have been a big risk at the time. I can see that because... they even like changed the, the the format of the antagonist of this sort of film. Mm-hmm. Like there was no big fist fight between them. It was a a duel of wits, which was one of the first times it's ever happened in this type of movie. Yeah, even going back to westerns and such, generally it wasn't the it wasn't an everyman type character. Mm-hmm. It was it was the big damn hero. John wasn't the big damn hero. He just happened to be in the right place at the right time and was making the best of what he found. Like, there was a lot of improvisation. It was clear that that was the case. The making an action movie into a Christmas movie, having a comedian and a stage actor be your leads. Mm. I mean, to the point that they didn't want to have Bruce Willis on the poster because they thought it wouldn't work. Because again, most of the other action movies that I think of around that time, it was the superhero action, superhero action character. You have Terminator, you have Robocop, you have Ram, uh, well, Rambo is a little bit different, but like second Rambo, not first blood. You got, I got that name. Jack Slater, the greatest mm. action movie of all time. Last action hero. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sarcasm. Right. <laughs> right, like, <laughs> that, but that's the type of action movies you have. So it, it breaks the trends. It stands up well, I think. Because it's not that. Mm. I, I I almost expected this to be a little more of that campy action hero. Just because I knew it was a late 80s, early 90s action movie. 
Yeah, I definitely thought it would follow yeah. more of the action tropes. 100%. Yeah, yeah. And no, this actually seems to be the, the film that started breaking that trend. So that says a lot. I, I think it helps the strength of it. And again, just the good story writing. Like, even as you go, we've both watched other action movies where there was stuff that pulled us out. <laughs> Neither of us are really seeing that in this. There's no plot thing making me go, huh, not like, how did they... X happened to Y. I mean, they even paid attention to where guns fell. <laughs> like, so you're not ever wondering why they weren't grabbing for a gun that well, mysteriously also, disappeared. Or... Well, it's also because the actions of the characters were understandable in the relation to, like, the plot and story itself. Mm -hmm. You didn't have that, like, uh, like that whole, like the whole uh, horror movie trope where, like, you know. Guy goes like, oh, I'll go, I'll go look myself, you know, or I'll go, mm -hmm. you know, make out with this girl in the woods. Like there is none of this, yeah. like screaming at the TV, like, no, don't yeah. do that, you idiot. Yeah. Whether like the internal consistency was really solid, even though it all yes. hinges on a really dumb vault thing. So be it uh, a heist or tourist season. <laughs> um, <laughs> there, there's really three... There's three aspects that, that make the move that would be considered the contrivances that have to happen for the plot to, to go through. One, you have a cop is happens to be there. Yep. Right. Happens to be in the same place as the, the family where the tourists come to visit. And the building has to be mostly empty. And all of those made sense. It's like, oh, well, the building's mostly empty because it's a Christmas party and we invited him because he's the husband. And... So even there was no forcing there either. Just mm -hmm. made sense for John to be there, and it made sense for there not to be any people around. And it's because Tagagi was a a saint who was hoping on a Christmas miracle. Yep, agreed. <laughs> uh, Tagagi was Santa all along. <laughs> is this is this why Santa, Santa is no longer real because he he died? This, this is this is so sad. Santa died at the top of Nakatomi headquarters on Christmas. <laughs> yeah, I think I think overall it's not it's not a masterpiece by far. But for what it is, even even when regarded as a Christmas movie, the fact that it stays away from a lot of like the 80s and 90s Christmas movie tropes are really appreciated. It was just enough that it still have it a bit of that feeling. I, I think this movie would only have Two out of a potential ten pieces of coal in its stocking. Damn. I, I, I adored this movie. I had a smile through most of it. Oh, oh I, I agree. I think, I think that uh, I had a different rating system in my head and it's gone now because of the coal one. Oh, the coal <laughs> one. <laughs> the coal so good. <laughs> I think it had something with tourists in mind. Yeah, um, I mean, like, I mean, that would be kind but, of... Tropey for my arbitrary rating systems at this point. It's a Christmas special. <laughs> you got to lean into it. That is true. Um, I would definitely say how many how many hoes? <laughs> <laughs> I I agree. Actually, I think the yeah only two only two pieces of coal. Maybe one and a half pieces of coal in the stockings. Um, well, it knew what it was. I it it knew what it was. It wasn't afraid to break the trends of the time. The story is solid. The acting is solid. Mm. Like, I mean, 
I almost disagree and I would say, no, I would actually consider this like a action masterpiece. I would definitely put it in the top tier of probably one of the best action movies of the 80s. Yeah. And it stands up, stands up today. Like, I mean, it's not John Wick, but nothing is. Um, it's not the Expendables. It, <laughs> well, it's the anti-Expendables. Mm, that's true. The Expendables, the Expendables is very much the superhero. Well, it's everything. It was everything that was exciting and over the top about 80s and 90s action flicks. So yeah. characterizing this as the anti-Expendables is the perfect characterization. Yeah. Because it broke most of uh, those trends. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, no, I, I, I definitely see why this is on much wa must watch lists all over the place. I'm surprised I haven't seen it earlier. <laughs> same. Very, very yeah. much the same. I mean, I, I kind of wish like it was the only one. Mm. I mean, I understand why they, they milked the crap out of it and made a bunch of them, but it's kind of like red. First one was awesome. Why'd you yep. make a sequel? Yeah. Especially yeah. when the sequel wasn't all that good. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm not sure how die harder is. I, I know I haven't seen die harder. Die hard with a vengeance set me up actually no i have to think about that now it did put me in a little bit of a different mindset but it was just more elaborate mm -hmm. right like and it i think it loses um the charm of this one here i yeah i didn't mind that one well guess me... die harder so i'm not sure if there are sequels that are good or bad or <laughs> well it's kind of like our concerns about sicario mm -hmm. like yes there's a sicario too and it looks like an action film, which mm -hmm. wasn't really what Sicario was. Yeah. Sicario was like a drama or even a thriller. Yeah. Like it was a psychological thing. I feel like all that they can do now is lean into the standard 80s, 90s action tropes instead of defining them. So I, I am worried about Die Hard 2, Die Harder. I haven't seen it. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly why. I mean, the one thing that we can... No, I haven't never I haven't heard of it in the category of those films. Cuz this is also the era of right around the era of the sequels being as good or surpassing the originals. Again, the Terminator Terminator vs Terminator 2, Alien vs Aliens. These are generally considered top-tier sequels, but I feel like I would have heard Die Harder if that was the case. Which yeah. does not help. <laughs> Those are two really good examples. Like, I can't even refute it. Yeah. <laughs> Had you used worse examples, I could have, like, just shuffled your opinion aside, but you pulled out the perfect two. <laughs> I'm just like, damn. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. <laughs> I guess with that we should probably wrap it up. Yeah. With that, this has been a very merry special edition of Beardy and the Beast Media Club. Join us next time where we discuss the film Sicario. As always, you know what to do. Like, subscribe, or join the conversation in the comments below or at our Discord. We're available here and on many other services with a full list available at beardyandthebeast.com. Happy Holidays! <laughs>